Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our evening service. And tonight, we're um, going to be celebrating communion together, looking at God's Word, doing some real nice singing, and uh, looking forward to everything the Lord has for us. By way of announcement this morning, I, I stress that all of the announcements are important, and I know that all of you, as diligent and studious as you are, and cooperative, that you've already read all the announcements. So I'm not going to say anything except the one that's not in there, and that has to do with Doris Singley's funeral service here uh, tomorrow, and that'll be at 11 o'clock, preceded by a viewing at 10 o'clock, and in lieu of flowers, we've been asked to announce gifts are appreciated to the Hospice Promise Foundation or to Alden Union Church. Would you join me in prayer, and we'll commit the evening once again to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have of calling you our Father and recognizing you're in heaven and recognizing that you're above everything that is here. And you're to be honored and praised and worshipped and glorified. And we do that this evening as best we can. And we know that we need your help to do that. So that's why we commit every service to you. And ask that you would help us from the inside out to be all that you want us to be and to respond the way you want us to respond. So we thank you for that and thank you for the blessing of knowing you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're about to sing a hymn. I can tell because Derek is right behind me. While we're singing that hymn, don't you think that it would be great? Because one of the things about communion is togetherness and community. If all of us moved from the second pillar, at least make the second pillar the end of the church. So when we're singing, if you would join us. Richard, you can get started now. I know it'll take a long time for you to get up here. But uh, from the middle pillar here, make that the back row, and then we'll all be here together. And we can sing better and we can serve communion better, and we can have community better. So move up if you will. Thank you. And now you can go back. No, I'm just Just kidding. Well, let's please take out our hymnals, and let's open up to hymn number 234, and let's sing about our God who is the King of Kings and we can crown him with many crowns. That's hymn 234. Let's sing together. Let's all stand as we sing. Crown him with many crowns.
Well, before we sit down this evening, let's take a few moments and greet those that are around us. Let's take a few moments. All right, well, when we take out our hymnals once again, we can stay seated as we sing. Let's, let's open up to hymn number 175. And we're going to sing Hallelujah, What a Savior. Again, let's stay seated as we sing. Good evening. My name is Takashi Ira. Those of you who may not know me, I'm one of the elders. I'm with the membership committee right now. Um, today, we're going to pray for Stacy Everline. So you join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for Stacy's life, which is dedicated to you through the ministry of BCM International. And we pray that the, you will bless her and use her for your purpose at the finance department of BCM and associated work in teaching new candidates for, about the finance of their ministry. 
and we pray that you will keep her safe as she teach those candidates and we pray that you will bless her in every way possible and you'll be kind to her in Christ's name amen Thank you, Lindsay and Michael. Let's continue to praise the Lord as we sing this evening. You are the Lord.
all to stand as we sing together. Let's sing Open the Eyes. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to Lift it up to see you high lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Sing, open the eyes, open the eyes of my heart, Lord.
phenomenal. You may be seated. to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel. We'll actually be starting in 1 Samuel chapter 13 tonight. We're doing a little bit of a review of the character of King Saul. This isn't a communion message, but we're going to be seeing a lot of things that he did wrong, particularly in how he handled sin. And a little bit later on as we celebrate communion, part of communion is to examine ourselves to see whether there's something that needs to be confessed to the Lord, something that needs to be dealt with. So As we see the wrong way to do it in Saul, we'll be reminded of the right way to do it and give us an opportunity as we move into the communion service a little bit later on. You should be receiving your outlines tonight. Normally, they're at the doors for you to get as you come in, but somebody forgot to put them there tonight. And I'm not going to mention who he is. There is a Fifth Amendment, and so I'm going to plead that Fifth Amendment this evening. So uh, in a few moments, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And as I mentioned, we're going to see why it was that King Saul was a very poor choice to be the king. He was the people's choice, but he wasn't God's first choice. God let the people get what they asked for. And as I mentioned before, he had some major character flaws. Even though physically he looked like the epitome of what a king should look like. So what we're going to see tonight is Saul is a very weak and disinterested individual spiritually. And we'll see five separate occasions where he showed what he was really like. And before we look at those together, let's pause and we'll ask the Lord to guide us through our time of study of his word. Heavenly Father, thank you that in one very real sense, um, figuratively speaking, at least we're removing our shoes because we're on holy ground because we're looking at your word. Your word through the Old Testament scriptures this evening that were given to us as an example and given to us as an encouragement, teaching us what it is you'd like us to be. So we ask for your help once again, and thank you for it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of the things we're going to do tonight as we look at these five occasions where Saul's failures are going to be very evident, we're going to try to attempt to give an expanded paraphrase. I haven't done that before that I can remember at least not very often, but an expanded paraphrase of what Saul is really saying and doing. And I want to do that so that we can even think a little bit more in a popular vernacular uh, a little bit to make sure that we're actually hearing the thoughts that King Saul is uttering on the pages of the Scripture. We want to be able to make sure that we're not hearing some of our own thoughts come through as we deal with sin or, in fact, as we don't deal with sin. In other words, we kind of want to clean the mirror of God's word a little bit so that we can see through it very plainly. So Saul becomes the prime Old Testament example of one who attempts to deal with wrongdoing in all the wrong ways. He's going to deny sin. We'll see him rationalizing sin. We'll see him hiding it. We'll see him blaming anybody else that he can for his sin. We'll see that he continues in his sin. All of these the wrong ways for us to handle sin. But King Saul is going to be doing them, each one of them. But I'd like for us to think about the way that David deals with sin. And you don't need to turn to Psalm 51, but in Psalm 51, and Pastor Kevin has alluded to this not too long ago, but in Psalm 51, let me share with you just some of the verbs that are there. Some of the verbs that describe what's going on. And I think it's often great to pick one part of speech and to go through a a passage and just see what's going on. But here's David's attitude toward God with some of the, the verbs, and I'll add a couple of extra words too. Have mercy on me. God's mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. So David understands he deserves something. He's sinned with Bathsheba. So Psalm 51 is his confession. Have mercy. Blot out, he says, and he's referring to his transgressions. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. I know my transgressions. In other words, he knows his sin. And sometimes that's a a problem with us. He says, my sin is ever before me. It was eating him up. He understood exactly what he had done. And then he said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil. Brought forth, he says, in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. And then he says, purge me. Wash me 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And then later on he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's how God wants us to deal with sin, the same way that David did. But we will see a lot of contrast between David and Saul. And there's a huge contrast in how they deal with sin. And we see that David dealt with sin coming before God and basically saying, I throw myself on the mercy of the court, the almighty court of God. Saul did exactly the opposite. But let me illustrate. Um, You see the picture on the screen. You understand that baseball's been having a lot of trouble. All of sports is having a lot of trouble with uh, the use of drugs, illegal drugs, and uh, drugs that are illegal in, in the sports world. Um, This is just an example of one of the caricatures of what goes on in sports today. I don't know about you, but I do read the sports page every once in a while. And as I read the sports page, it seems like they should have a special column every single day just with jurisprudence, just to tell who it was that's been arrested for whatever he's done or who's been suspended or who it is that's not going to be able to play for six months or whatever it is. So... um, Think about this. There was a professional baseball player. He was suspended because of, in this case, it was cocaine addiction. And he explained his position to the press. And I want you to tell me if you think this is more like uh, where Saul is headed or more where David would be if this was something he was accused of. This baseball player told the reporters that he suffered from a disease called chemical dependency. He said it had taken him a long time to conclude that his drug abuse was not a moral issue but rather a disease. Well, is that David or Saul, would you think? Um, That's going to be where Saul would be. But that approach to the the baseball player took is understandable, even though it's an inaccurate approach. We all know that it's easier to face a problem if we don't have to accept the blame for it. It's a whole lot easier to say, I'm sick, than to say, I'm wrong, and I'm a sinner. The bad choices we make will usually lead to a bondage that seems more physical. Maybe it seems more chemical than either it is moral or spiritual. But I know that some of us struggle with some issues. Some of us struggle with addiction issues. Some of us struggle with other things. Please do what David did. He says, I know my sin. I know my sin. It's always before me. Please understand the difference between sin and disease. And chemical dependency is not a disease, despite what they try to tell us. You know this as well as I do, that it's a lot easier to come up with a less convicting word for various sins. For example, having an affair seems so much more innocent than committing adultery, doesn't it? Um, Having an affair sounds like something that uh, comes kind of naturally, and there's so so many movies about that sort of thing, but committing adultery sounds worse. Comparing answers, so much more preferable than cheating in school. Borrowing or appropriating seems better than stealing. Or stretching the truth, far less harsh than lying. Or if you remember Susan Rice's now famous euphemism on 60 Minutes last year of someone, she said he was inadvertently made false representations. Um, that's, that's a great way to, to say somebody lied. Another more recent one, a terminological inexactitude. (laughs) Add those to the years of a little white lie, a harmless fib, a tall tale, a fish story, etc., etc. We can downgrade and downplay everything. I love David's fresh attitude when he says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Obviously, he had sinned against human beings, but ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, he had let down his father. So we're going to look at King Saul now in contrast, five disappointing vignettes of his fleshly reign as king. And there are more that will be coming, but these are ones that are right on the surface right now. And the first one is one that I refer to as the burnt offering foolishness. And we can see that in chapter 13, and you've been patient. You've been in chapter 13 holding that for quite some time. 
But if you look at chapter 13, and we'll pick up in verse 7, we saw what happened here some time ago. It's actually before the elective, so it really was some time ago, when we were looking at reactions to adversity. And we saw that the Philistines were coming. They had a formidable army. They had all the weapons. The Israelites didn't have anything. And we saw that some of the Israelites responded in negative ways. Some of them ran away. Some of them hid. Some of them stayed, and their emotions were sinful. They were trembling with fear. Saul is one who stayed behind, and he sinned. He was involved in sinful behavior. There was one right reaction. Jonathan showed that. He and his armor bearer went and fought the Philistines single-handedly. Here in chapter 13, verse 7, it details what happened with Saul. Verse 7, it says, And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So the burnt offering foolishness. As we're developing the character of Saul, we can see that. And we can see that Saul sinned in several different ways. And they're they're pretty apparent to us. First of all, he disobeyed Samuel, who was God's prophet. The prophet said, wait. The prophet said seven days. The seven days came and went. And at that particular time, Saul decided that he really wasn't going to wait to see what God wanted him to do. He wasn't going to wait for the prophet. He had to take matters into his own hands. But not only that, when he took the matters into his own hands, he disobeyed God's law, both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy which didn't permit anybody but a priest to offer the burnt offering that he offered. So he he wanted to do something. He did it, but it was improper. Now notice some of the negative qualities that we're going to see in Saul's character just as a result of this. The first one would be impatience. Now this is when I said uh, I'm going to try to paraphrase some things. I just read this from the scripture, but let me paraphrase a little bit. This is what's going on in Saul's mind, the real words behind what he's thinking. God, I can't wait any longer for you. I need to do it my way now. You ever find yourself thinking thoughts like that? Can't wait any longer for you. I can't wait any longer for your way. I've got to do it my way now. That's one negative quality. Another one would be buck passing. If you look back to verse 11, he does a great job at this. Who does he blame when Samuel says, what have you done? Well, here's here's what he says. When I saw that the people were scattering from me. So first of all, the people were partly to blame at least. The people were scattering from me. And you, Samuel, you didn't come within the days appointed. So I'm going to blame you partly too. And then the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. So it's a combination of all these things coming together. It's certainly not my fault. It's the fault of the people and you and the Philistines and this perfect storm that's coming together. And I love it in verse 12. He says, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Don't you feel sorry for him? He forced himself to do what was wrong. It was everybody else's fault and the circumstances around him, but it wasn't his. Buck passing. Here's a paraphrase. He says, The buck stops there. I confess he did it. God, it's not my fault. Reminds us of the Garden of Eden. (laughs) Again, some great buck passers there. God confronted Adam and Eve with their sin. So Adam blamed the woman and God. 
the woman you gave me gave me this and then Eve decided to blame the serpent but nobody was where David was and I trust where we are tonight even as we look forward to communion and God places something on our mind and we don't try to rationalize it away we don't try to minimize it we don't try to blame somebody else we don't get into all of these things that Saul got into instead we do what David did and Lord I know that I've sinned my sins always before me and I want to deal with it the proper way there's another negative here, and it's called situation ethics. We don't hear that term very much any longer, but situation ethics basically says there is no real absolute. There is no right or wrong. The situation dictates how I should react. And some situations tell me that it's okay to lie. Some situations tell me it's okay to steal. Some situations tell me it's okay to sin any way I want to. Um, the main thing that I've got to try to do is to make sure that I'm loving in whatever I do, and then I can sin however I want to do after that. So paraphrasing in Saul's mind, according to verse 12, when he's doing this, you know, this would have come out all right in the end. I forced myself to do the right thing, even though it may have seemed wrong at the time to some. I forced myself to do the right thing. So remember what's going on here with Saul. We can't improve on God's timing. If we remember this, it'll keep us from many sins, including worrying and scheming and manipulating and running ahead because God's timing is always perfect. And if God says, wait on me, then that's what we should be doing. Now, let me share a comforting thought to those of you that may be impatient, to those of you that like to run on ahead. I hope this will be a comforting thought. Do you ever feel like the driver ahead of you on the road is driving at a snail's pace? Let me put that into some perspective. You'll need, first of all, to check your speedometer. Because... Scientists, actually, this is University of Maryland scientist, tells us that snail's paces are 0 0.003630005 miles an hour. So the car ahead of you is not really going at a snail's pace unless he's parked. <laughs> Can anybody tell me what that number is besides 0 0.003630005? Any mathematicians can tell me what that is? What is it? <laughs> okay. One or two yards an hour. <laughs> okay, if somebody can, I'd like to hear that because it's been a long time since I tried to figure out that kind of a decimal. The burnt offering foolishness on the part of Saul. We also have what I refer to as the God on a yo-yo fiasco, and this takes place in chapter 14. You may recall that when Jonathan went after the Philistines, he and his armor bearer, there are a lot of things that are going on at that particular time. One of them is in verses 18 and 19. Because once they started to defeat the garrison of the Philistines, the whole Philistine army panicked. A whole lot of things were going on. And in verse 18, So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, so he wants to bring the ark of God. He wants to determine what God's will is. He doesn't quite know what to do. He's just found out that Jonathan is missing. He sees that something's abuzz with the Philistines. He wants some guidance. But then he says, now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. What's he saying? Never mind. Uh, never mind. I don't really care what God says at this particular point because I can see the way things are going and if we were going to paraphrase that again the paraphrase would be this starting out God I need to talk with you about this difficult situation how about now we can talk oh wait a minute I'll catch you later things are getting pretty hectic around here it looks like I may not need your help I think I can handle this myself don't call me I'll call you when things slow down a little bit if I stop to find out what you want, I may lose my military advantage at this point. God on a yo-yo. I think I need God. I think I need guidance. No, things are starting to shape up. I think I don't need God any longer, and he's back and forth in this regard. Are we ever guilty of giving God passing interest, but we have no time for him then when things start to get real busy or when things start to go our own way again? We think we need God because times are tough, but times get a little bit better, and now I don't need him. 
I'm sure many of you have heard this poem. The author is unknown. It's called Into the Day. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish, I didn't have time to pray. Troubles just tumbled about me, and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, why, child, you didn't knock. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I called on the Lord for the reason. He said, you didn't seek. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. You see that contrast once again. The God on a yo-yo fiasco that when it's convenient, when I have time, I'll give God all the time I need. I'll acknowledge I need his guidance. But when things heat up or when things go my way and I don't think I need him, I'll put him on the yo-yo just like Saul did. Third vignette. I call this the vindictive oath farce. And this is in chapter 14, verse 24. Chapter 14, verse 24. And this is new ground for us. We haven't been here before. It starts out and says, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. And one of the reasons they had been hard-pressed is that they were working very, very hard. They were fatigued. They were hungry. They were hard-pressed. The battle was okay, but they were working very, very hard. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. In other words, nobody's going to eat anything until I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. That's one of the reasons why they were hard-pressed. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Could have been a lot better, Jonathan is saying, if we only had a little bit of nourishment, if we only had a little bit of food, everything would have been a whole lot better. The problem is, as we might paraphrase paraphrase from Saul, I'll get even with these enemies no matter who else gets hurt. Your discomfort means nothing to me as long as I satisfy my desire for revenge. We see that in verse 24. We're not this far ahead yet, but in verse 36, then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night. He wasn't finished yet. A lot of other things are going to happen, but he's not finished. He wants to get that done, and he wants to get it done quickly, and he doesn't care the toll that it takes on anyone. If you look at verse 24, in the New International Version, there's an extra pronoun given to us there, just in the way they translate. It says, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. It's almost like me, myself, and I. Uh, There's something to Saul right now that this is personal. This is my own vendetta. Of course, thinking only of oneself leads to some very harmful and even stupid decisions. Saul's tunnel vision was harmful to the rest of his army. Verse 27, Jonathan ate honey. His eyes became bright. The opposite idea is conveyed by the Hebrew word for fainting, derived from roots meaning to be shrouded in darkness. That's why we see in verse 28, the men are faint. Verses 29 and 30, Jonathan recognized the foolishness of Saul's impatient plan because, again, the people were faint. It was the idea of a contrast between darkness and light. Saul's self-centeredness contributed to the sin of the army in the next few verses that we're about to read. 
They were starved, and they threw all inhibitions to the wind when they finally got a chance to eat. But something was wrong here. And Saul decided he would fix it very quickly. Verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. You say, oops, that's forbidden, isn't it, in the Jewish law to eat with the blood still? Yeah, it was, and, but they didn't care at that point. They didn't care because they were so hungry. They were going to take from the Philistines animals and they were going to eat them even with the blood still in there. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Call this a quick fix. Saul brought about a lot of this by himself by starving his own army and they were famished. But then there was sin by the soldiers. Got to give Saul some credit. He acted properly to put an end to it. But verse 35 gives us an indication that religious or spiritual matters had not been a priority with Saul. It says it was the first altar he had built to the Lord. It's also the last altar he built to the Lord as recorded at least in the scriptures. Here's his paraphrase. God, now I'm ready to meet you on your terms. We've gotten into a jam. I know I've been in touch. I've been out of touch, but this problem could get serious. So I'm kind of back again. I know we can let some things slide. We can get away with the little things, but this looks pretty serious. I don't want to get in real trouble with you. And so we have an example here of selective obedience, which is really disobedience, kind of foxhole theology. Reminds me of the story that I heard a fisherman who was out of fellowship with the Lord. He was out at sea. He was with his godless companions. Storm came up, threatened to sink the ship. His friends begged him to pray. But he demurred. He said, it's been a long time since I've done that or even entered a church. But they insisted. And finally he cried out to the Lord, Oh Lord, I haven't asked anything of you in 15 years. And if you help us now and bring us safely to land, I promise I won't bother you again for another 15. Listen to the sobering reality when we see that prayer is often an escape mechanism rather than a way of life. That's where Saul was. No real time for God. And then the final vignette. I call this the fickle failure. This picks up in verse 36. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. That is, God did not answer Saul that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, that is by lot here, by the lots it was indicated that the problem was with either Jonathan or Saul. But the people escaped. They weren't to blame. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me, and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed 
Jonathan, or rescued in some other translations, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The last verses in the chapter talk about Saul having great success against his enemies and names his family for us. But as we're looking at the fickle failure, here's the paraphrase. I can't seem to get through, God. There can only be one reason for this. It can't be me, and it's probably not you, God. Let me find out whose fault it is. Let me find someone to blame. We've got another Achan around here somewhere. And so there he is. He's impatient. He's jumping to conclusions. He's making improper assumptions. He's speaking hastily, three foolish oaths. First, he says, cursed is anybody who eats until nightfall. Then he says, whether it's Jonathan or me, and he had no idea at that time who it was, doesn't matter. Whoever did this has to die. And then when he found out it was Jonathan, he said, you've got to die. And all of that is foolishness. It's impatience, speaking hastily. What do we conclude? Can we see what an impatient life leads to? Can we see what happens to someone who doesn't like God's timing and God's plan and what a mess it creates? It always does. That's why it's so significant. In James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's not the time to panic. It's not the time to say, oh no, woe is me. Got to figure out a solution. It says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as we look at the failures of Saul and contrast them with the successes of David, and we see how Saul handled sin as opposed to the way David handled sin, let's pause for a moment even right now. Let's examine ourselves in a moment of silence, a moment of quiet prayer, and examine ourselves and prepare for communion. And let me say this, that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I invite you to watch what goes on, but don't participate. You will see an acted-out sermon. You will see us remembering the death of the Lord Jesus, and we're told to do that until he comes again. But part of what we're doing is to examine ourselves and make sure that we're not participating in an unworthy manner. So you don't have to be a member of Alden Union Church, but there are strong warnings in the Bible. You need to be part of the body of Christ. That is, you need to have received Christ as your Savior. Otherwise, let the the plate pass and the cup pass and watch this acted-out sermon that will take place. In the meantime, let's take a moment in silence. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for what the Lord Jesus instituted. The Apostle Paul reminded us of it in 1 Corinthians. And we're supposed to Take the bread and be reminded of the body of the Lord Jesus. The body of the Lord Jesus, which it says is for you. It's for us. That body was torn apart for us. Substitution, the Lord Jesus, in our place. And how we pause to thank you and to remember as we're told. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
let us participate together in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we never tire of giving thanks. Thank you that now we give thanks for the symbol of the blood of the Lord Jesus, the cup after supper, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, where we're told again to do it whenever we drink it in remembrance of our Lord Jesus. So we do that tonight, again, with gratitude, recognizing without the shedding of that blood there could have been no forgiveness of sin. It required a perfect sacrifice. None of us could apply. None of us could have been that sacrifice. Only the Lord Jesus. And thank you for your great love that we've shown to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us participate together in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for giving to us reminders because we are such forgetful people. Even about things that are very important, we still forget. But thank you that until the Lord Jesus comes back again, you've called us to remember his death. And we remember his death, and we know that he's coming back again, so we fill in all the blanks in between and understand that he didn't stay dead. 
couldn't be still dead or he wouldn't be coming back again. We understand that he rose again from the dead to display your power. We understand that after that resurrection, he appeared here on this earth and then he ascended to heaven. And even now he's there praying for us, making intercession for us, preparing to come back again. We don't know exactly when. Could be soon. We look forward to that. But in the meantime, we remember. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please take out our hymnals and let's close this evening's service by singing about his amazing love. Let's open up to 203. And we're going to sing the first and fourth verses of And Can It Be, 203. Let's stand and sing together. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.